So welcome everybody to Health or Consequences, the Massachusetts Health Policy Podcast of Commonwealth Magazine and Mass Inc. My name is John McDonough. I'm from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, and I'm joined by my associate, Paul Haddis of the Lown Institute. And we produce this podcast monthly. And so thanks for joining us today. Today, we are excited and pleased to have as our guest, Dr. Robbie Goldstein, who on April 18th of this past spring became the commissioner of the Massachusetts Department of Public Health. Prior to that, he was a senior policy advisor at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC. He was an infectious disease physician at Mass General Hospital and a faculty member at Harvard Medical School. At the CDC, he served as an advisor to Director Rochelle Walensky on public health emergency response, infectious disease, and strategic policy initiatives. Dr. Goldstein was medical director and founder of the MGH Transgender Health Program. He trained in infectious diseases, particularly specializing in HIV treatment and prevention. Dr. Goldstein, welcome. A pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So the Boston Globe had a story about you and reported that you have a plaque on your desk that reads, quote, hard things are hard, unquote. So can you tell us what's the hardest thing or what's so hard about being the commissioner of public health in Massachusetts? So I, I think I also need to explain a little bit about how that plaque got there. But let me just start um, by saying that this is actually a phrase that I have said and have heard and have been educated about for many years. Uh, and it's true of many things that we do in medicine and in public health, that what we're trying to do is incredibly hard. We are talking about complex situations, human life, and the integration of data, the evidence that we have with the reality of how humans behave and how humans act. And so what we do in public health is just tremendously hard. But um, to give you a little bit of background of how that plaque ended up on my desk, this is, this is a phrase a lot of people have heard, hard things are hard. And the second part of that, we can do hard things. This is something that my mentor at CDC and prior to CDC said all the time. Rochelle Walensky had on her desk at Mass General, which she brought with her to Atlanta. It was on her desk at CDC as well, a plaque that said hard things are hard. And we oftentimes would find ourselves really entrenched in complicated issues. When we were at MGH, it was patient care and the, the direct impact we were having on one individual's life. And when we were at CDC, it was the complicated mix of emerging data and the setting of a pandemic and the need to get public health resources out to 360 million Americans seemingly overnight. Those are really hard situations. And we would say to each other almost on a daily basis, hard things are hard and we can do hard things. I find, I've actually found here at DPH, sometimes things are harder. <laughs> And yet I have a group of people with me at the department that are willing to dig in and engage in this work. They recognize how hard our work is and they recognize how important our work is. And so they're willing to do the, the next step to actually do the hard thing. Could you give us an example of something right now that you're grappling with that's particularly hard? I can give you a number of examples, but let me just say, let's think about climate change and the impact that climate is having on health. I think we all recognize that climate change is happening but it's only within the past five to 10 years that we are starting to really grapple with the tremendous effect it is gonna have on human health. 
we've always thought about what would happen as sea levels rise to housing and to transportation, what would happen with increased greenhouse gases and changes in temperature and how that might impact agriculture. But we're actually seeing real substantial changes in human health here in the Commonwealth simply because of climate change. That is really hard, right? We're, we're talking about centuries of actions that have led us to this point. And now we have to do the work of unwinding that and making some real changes that will quickly put us in the right track as we also do the necessary adaptation to what is unfortunately the changes that we can't reverse at this point. So that's a hard thing we grapple with every day. Dr. Goldstein, this is Paul Hattis. Let me offer my words of welcome. And actually, with your permission, I'm going to call you Robbie because I'm told by you actually that your patients call you that. So I'm, I'm going to do along those lines. But let me build um, from the specific to the to the more general. You know, you mentioned climate change being a hard issue. My guess is when you were working with your uh, mentor, Rochelle Walensky at the CDC, you learned a lot of things, although likely in an infectious disease context, I have a feeling, but also things relevant to climate change. Uh, what would you say you learned most from that experience that in some ways is relevant for your job now? I've known Rochelle for a long time, um, and she's been a fantastic mentor for as long as I've known her. But it was in the two years that we were together at CDC where I learned just a tremendous amount from her leadership, her guidance, her, her the way in which she interacts with people. I joined CDC the first week of February 2021. Just put ourselves back in that situation. We had just rolled out a vaccine, but not everyone in the country had access to that vaccine. If you remember, we were in a phased approach. We were dealing with the first of what would become many variants of SARS-CoV-2 and the unknown of what happens as this virus mutates. We were a year into a pandemic that had really shut down so much of our economy and our society, and the fatigue was setting in. So it was a, a wild time to be at CDC, and I had to quickly hit the ground running um, and learn how to operate in this agency of 14,000 people within a very complex federal government. One of the things that Rochelle taught me very early on in that my time at CDC was to always remember who we're working for. We at that point at, at CDC were working for the 360 million Americans and the millions of people around the globe that look to CDC for guidance, advice, and support. Here in Massachusetts, I've really tried to keep that close to what I'm doing to recognize that I'm here to serve the 7 million people of the Commonwealth um, and every day wake up understanding that responsibility that sits on my shoulders. I think she also taught me very early on in our time together, but then really brought it home in our time and our work at CDC, the importance of equity in what we're doing. It is not enough for us anymore to simply document the inequities that exist, to acknowledge that there are disparities in care that we deliver. It is our responsibility to dig in and to do the actual work of addressing systemic racism, the structural barriers that exist. Going back to hard things are hard, this is hard work. This is really centuries of structural racism that has been built into our system that has resulted in these incredible inequities that we see. And she taught me how to look at every problem with that lens of addressing health equity, overall equity in what we're doing. I can't imagine a better teacher for all of those things. I every day think of what would Rochelle do in my job? 
uh, and try to put myself in her shoes or in her brain for just a little bit so that I can gain some of that wisdom that I know she has. I call her frequently um, to continue to get her mentorship and her guidance, but I, I carry those lessons with me in the work that I do. So lots of folks in Massachusetts, I won't say most because I don't know, but for a very large number, COVID-19 is, is in the rearview mirror. Um, it's, it's, it's past, it's history, we're over it, we're moving forward. What have we as a Commonwealth, do you think, learned from the COVID experience that we wish we knew then? And are we ready for another outbreak or have we gone to sleep and we're going to be uh, cursed to continuing to repeat the same thing over and over again in terms of dealing with these crises? I think I'll first say that um, I think we are moving forward from COVID-19 and from the pandemic, but it's not over and it's not in our rearview mirror. I think people just need to look at the Massachusetts DPH website, our dashboard that shows COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations and deaths that continue to persist in the Commonwealth. And I'll say importantly, we're putting those in the context of other respiratory viruses this year that help us understand the real impact that respiratory viruses have uh, on the health of, of the people in Massachusetts. I think it's really hard to look back on January 2020, when we first heard about cases and reports coming out of China, February of 2020, as we were thinking about preparedness, March of 2020, when um, the first cases were reported in Massachusetts and in other places around the country, and think, what do we wish we knew then? Um, obviously, we wish we knew that there was a vaccine that could be available in less than 12 months. We wish we knew that there would be treatments that could come on the market. We knew how to uh, predict and adapt to the, the mutations that the virus um, accumulated over those time periods. But I think it may be getting to the, the latter part of your question. What I wish we knew back then was the importance of preparedness in our emergency response infrastructure. I think it is reasonable to say that we entered 2020 with a pretty weak, anemic preparedness infrastructure in this country. I think Massachusetts was likely better than much of the rest of the country, given the, the infrastructure that we've built, the private hospital infrastructure that exists here and the way that the Department of Public Health, the Executive Office of Health and Human Services, and MEMA, the state's emergency management system, have worked together for some time. But even here, we were not as prepared as we should be. And I, I wish we knew actually in June of 2019, the importance of preparedness so that we could have spent six months building the necessary infrastructure. I think we've learned a lot in three years, over three years. And here at, at the Department of Public Health, I came in in April, as you noted, and, and one of the first things I said to people was, we can never let that happen again to the Massachusetts Department of Public Health, meaning we need to be prepared. We need to be ready to respond to whatever threat may come our way. And I've challenged people to say, we might feel prepared for the next, quote, COVID pandemic. If there's another respiratory virus that comes, and just remind folks, in 2019, infectious disease docs around the world were concerned about pandemic influenza, which has not happened, but could happen. <laughs> um, I think we are in a better place if a respiratory virus happened. But there are other threats that could come our way. Threats from climate change, as I talked about, threats on reproductive rights and our ability to have uh, abortion care access in the Commonwealth, threats on gender-affirming care, 
threats related to hospital capacity and the number of beds that we have in the system. It, there are many threats that face health and public health in Massachusetts. And I have challenged the 3,200 people in the Department of Public Health to all see themselves as necessary responders to those threats and to work into their training, preparedness training, so that we are never again in the situation like we were in March of 2020. So Robbie, let me move you to a, another threat, at least one that, that John and I talk a lot about, which has to do with structure and costs uh, and spending in the healthcare marketplace for folks in Massachusetts. And as an infectious disease doc, you did a, a great job a minute ago taking us from the notion of an individual infection issue to how you think about preparedness at a, at a larger level. Well, your, your large department also is charged under its determination of need program with making judgments about things like major hospital capital projects or expansions and the like. And, and right now in the news, although I don't think it's technically come to you yet officially, the Dana-Farber has announced that they're going to be building their own new uh, freestanding cancer hospital, and there's also going to be a new affiliation for them. Um, I know while the, the details have not officially come to you yet, do you at this point have any thoughts either about what Dana-Farber is planning to do, or or maybe if that's harder for you to comment on, although, although John, I would love to hear it, can you talk a little bit about how you think your agency, either on its own or working with other government agencies, will need to approach the review of this particular project? Let me start with the specific around Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center affiliation and, and the potential building. And then I, I think there's a, a robust conversation we could have about the role the department has in determination of need and in the healthcare landscape. As you both know, that the affiliation was announced with the intention to build a, a large freestanding cancer hospital that would be affiliated with the Beth Israel Deaconess. That affiliation actually falls to um, HPC, right, under their authorities to review that affiliation. And what would come to the department is the construction of the cancer hospital and then the licensure of that hospital to make sure that it fits within the licensure requirements and our regulations. I think it's hard for us to comment on this at this point. We, I will say that we've been in communication and, and want to be supportive of the process. Um, but we also need more information to know what we're supporting and to know, you know what, what exactly Dana-Farber has in mind and how closely the Beth Israel will be engaged in the building of and the licensure of the potential cancer hospital. Pending that information, that will go to our determination of the program. It will go to public comments through our public health council. Um, and I think we will take a very critical look at what the affiliation is hoping to achieve and what the cancer hospital is hoping to do for health in Massachusetts and apply the, the same factors that we apply to other determination of needs to make sure that this is a net benefit. Just to follow up on that for a moment, you know, the, the DON global charge includes judging capital projects on issues like how does this impact market competitiveness or system transformation? And is it being done at the lowest reasonable aggregate cost, not just the project, but what it what it ultimately leads to. Are those issues that you feel confident that you and your department and the Public Health Council can readily judge uh, well on its own, or, or what's your thought about that? I think it's a really great point, and that is, that's one of the factors, right, that go into the determination of need. And, and one of the questions I've had about determination of need since joining the department is, do we have the expertise to answer these questions? 
And actually, I'll maybe even take it a step further and say, do we have the expertise to ask the questions? Are we asking the right questions of those who apply? I do think the answer after six months here at the department is yes, we do, although not all of that is housed within the Department of Public Health. We're fortunate to work in a secretariat that has immense resources um, of talent, really smart people who can think through these critical issues and ask the right questions and analyze the answers. We have a close working relationship with HPC um, and with others that will help us make sure that we are putting the right critical lens on this process while also keeping in mind the ultimate goal, which is that we want to make sure that there is the highest quality care, access to the highest quality care in Massachusetts at the lowest possible cost. So that is, that's the goal of determination of need, and that is our goal in this process. I think we have to see what information comes to us, but I, I do feel confident that we have the team across the Secretariat and across government to be able to answer the questions that come to us. Thank you for that. Well, John, I will look forward to observing all of that. Let me move you ahead to another sort of important issue. I think that a lot of us uh, who think about governmental public health worry about or think about is local public health. And we're unique here in Massachusetts because it's organized around 351 towns and cities rather than at some other unit of government, often in, in many other states, let's say at a county level, though we do have a few larger city uh, public health departments. There's a bill now before the legislature called the Statewide Accelerated Public Health for Every Community Act, or SAFI-2. It builds on a prior legislation that, that was a bit focused on this area. What do you think of that specific legislation and the issues of trying to encourage public health to do a better job, maybe sharing of resources and uniformity of reporting and regulations and the like? What's, what's your thought about that proposed law? So this is a follow-up to 1.0. This is 2.0 of this law. 1.0 was an incredible benefit to the Commonwealth. As you noted, we have 351 cities and towns, and we pride ourselves on home rule. We pride ourselves on the idea that, that those municipalities can operate independently and do what they feel is right for their communities. The first version of this law did something pretty remarkable, which was that it established the concept of shared services agreements which meant that really small towns and even some bigger cities that had a close kinship with a neighboring municipality could join in partnership and begin to share resources. And what we've seen since the passage uh, is that we now have, um, and I think the ink is now dry on this, 321 of the 351 municipalities are part of a shared service agreement. So what does that mean? That means that places like the Outer Cape that used to be in an incredible deficit for public health workers, because it's hard to hire four public health nurses, one in Provincetown, one in Truro, one in Wellfleet, and one in Eastham, they now could hire one public health nurse, share that person across the four municipalities, and all benefit from that resource. It is really remarkably transforming what we're doing in local public health. What this next version would do is move that uh, just a little bit further. So as part of the first version, there was an ask for the department to push for these shared service agreements, to utilize them and also our work with municipalities to set standards for local public health. We released those last week at our public health council meeting. And that the response has been overwhelmingly positive that people now have a goal. And SAFE 2.0 would bring us to a place where local municipalities, either through their own efforts or through shared service agreements, 
would be required to meet those standards subject to appropriation from the Commonwealth. So I, I do think that it's an enormous step. The first version was an enormous step. This is another enormous step forward to support local public health if we provide adequate resources and now we provide people with a rubric to judge themselves and the technical assistance, the training, the support that they need to get them there, we will see a, a real transformation of local public health. And if I may, I'll just add just one other thing about the importance of local public health to me, which is one of the things I did when I came into the department back in April was to take a look at, does our structure match our values? We have said that our values include emergency preparedness and, and the importance of local public health, but did our structure represent that? And I didn't think it did. And so one of the first acts I did as commissioner was that I elevated our Office of Preparedness and Emergency Management and our Office of Local and Regional Health to report directly to me so that there was a clear understanding that emergency preparedness, local and regional health are incredibly important to the Department of Public Health and that I want to make sure that we are pushing that out all across the Commonwealth to 351 cities and towns. I think the response to that has been very positive from both sides, the emergency preparedness side and the, uh, the local government side. And we're seeing a lot of action happen because we've kind of really supercharged those two offices. Switching gears a little bit, Dr. Goldstein. So two key challenges that face Massachusetts and particularly the city of Boston are substance use disorder and homelessness, um, overlapping and distinct at the same time. The sharp end of the challenge is at a, the situation called Mass and Cass, Massachusetts Avenue and Melania Cass Boulevard in Boston South End, which for getting close to a decade now has been a human catastrophe. Mayor Michelle Wu came in committed to a strong public health approach to trying to address that issue. She brought in your predecessor, Dr. Monica Burrell, who worked for her for six years to work on the issue. There seems to be uh, very little, if any, progress that's been made in resolving that. And the Boston Globe recently had a commentary suggesting that Mass and Cass represents the failure of the public health approach to addressing situations such as this. Do you have a view on this as public health met its limits at Mass and Cass. So I, I have a lot of views on this, a lot of thoughts on this. I, I guess I would say to the Boston Globe um, into that particular line, um, I, we have to remember the counterfactual. I think public health has done a tremendous amount at Mass and Cass and to address substance use and homelessness across the Commonwealth. What is hard to quantify, what's hard to understand is what would have been the devastation? How much bigger would the devastation have been had we not been at the table and had we not had public health outreach workers on the street at Mass and Cass, had we not had an engagement center in the South End to bring people in, to get them recovery services, to make sure that those who wanted treatment beds had treatment beds available. That said, I also wanna recognize that this is an incredible tragedy. We released our semi-annual opioid report back in June and reported the highest number of opioid-related overdose deaths that the Commonwealth has ever seen. There is a 2.5% increase from what we've seen in 2021 compared to 2022. We're seeing the inequities. I talked about the inequities and disparities before. The greatest increase in opioid overdose deaths was among Black, non-Hispanic residents in the Commonwealth. This is a racial equity issue. This is a public health issue. This is a humanitarian issue. 
uh, I think I look at public health and I see the power. I see the things that we can do and that we have done. We as a state and in collaboration with the city have allocated hundreds of millions of dollars to address substance use and to think about prevention and treatment efforts. We've gotten uh, over 50,000 doses of naloxone to over 10,000 people to make sure that we have the medication available to reverse overdoses. Just last month during recovery month, we worked in collaboration with Boston Medical Center and with RISE to make sure that there is a statewide hotline so that no one has to use alone. We know that overdoses and deaths from overdose occur largely when people are using substances by themselves. We now have a statewide line that's funded with state dollars that will make sure that everyone has a place they can call as they're using and someone who on the other end of the line can call emergency services and get them to care. These are the power of public health, right? This is how we do things. And it's incredibly hard to imagine what would have happened if we didn't have all these resources in place. You know, when it comes specifically to Mass and Cass, I'll say that we are working in close collaboration with the Boston Public Health Commission, with the mayor's office, trying to figure out what additional resources we as a state can bring, how we can support um, those that are in the area. We're talking to our providers funded through the Bureau of Substance Addiction Services to figure out what do we need to boost up uh, in the coming weeks and months? How do we get people the access to resources they need if they were to shift from that location to a different location in the city or in the state? Uh, and I think that collaboration is really important. And again, it's a collaboration that's born out of public health, right? Again, it shows the power of public health to address these enormous issues, these hard things that are in our way. So have you been to Mass and Cass since you became commissioner? Yes, although I haven't done a formal walkthrough Mass and Cass, if that's what you're referring to. I've gone to Boston Healthcare for the Homeless a number of times since becoming commissioner, as you know, right around the corner. Um, talked a lot to those providers there about the resources that they're bringing to bear. Talked to um, a number of people who operate through the engagement center. And so this is an issue that the city has wanted to take the lead on, and we are fully supportive of the city taking the lead. We want them to know, we want everyone to know that the Massachusetts Department of Public Health is there with them and that we have resources that we're happy to bring to bear should they need them. So average citizens, either they drive by, they see it with their own eyes, they see it on the news media, in the newspapers, and they wonder why can't government address this? And, and you talk about all the things going on behind the scenes, which is absolutely legitimate, but for just an average citizen saying, where's government allowing this to continue for almost a decade now, what can you say to them? I think I can say that, not that this is a great answer, but this is complicated. It's incredibly complicated. We are talking about um, substance use, which continues to carry tremendous stigma and discrimination for those who are um, using substances. It's very challenging um, to see those individuals, right? And to make sure that they have all the resources that they need. We're talking about housing, which as we all know, is in tremendous short supply across the state, but in particular in the city of Boston, where housing costs have really prohibited people from getting access to what they might need. Um, we're talking about this happening at a time, just recognize that it's at a time when our emergency assistance program and emergency shelter across the state has expanded dramatically, and we have reached tremendous numbers that no one ever thought we would hit. And so there are a lot of moving pieces here Government is working, government is working hard, government at all levels is coordinated on this, but these are these are the hard things that we have to face 
And this is the very hard work that has to happen day in and day out with these collaborations. One brief follow-up. Do you have any specific thought about the future use of the Shattuck Hospital site to contribute to addressing the, the variety of different issues that, that in some ways reflect what's going on at Mass and Chaos? This is all connected, certainly. Um, the What we call the Morton Street campus that's in Franklin Park, where the current Lemuel Shattuck Hospital is, um, will become something different. What that is, I think, is still, the jury's still out on that. As, as folks probably know, Boston Medical Center and a coalition of um, community organizations came together with a proposal to the state of how to redevelop that area. And we're in constant communication about what is the right utilization of that particular site. What I think is reassuring to me is that we saw in BMC's proposal and we see in the state's response a commitment to housing and an understanding that housing is healthcare, housing is public health, um, housing is critical to addressing the substance use crisis. Um, and I think we will always continue to see that commitment to housing in what happens at the Morton Street site. The additional services that might need to be there, I think are really gonna flow from what is it that the community needs, recognizing that we may create a bit of a new community as we build housing units. So what public health and healthcare resources do we need to bring into that site to make sure people have everything to keep them as healthy as possible? So final question, Commissioner, thank you for joining us again. So when, when you're finished with this job, however long that may be, however long you're there for, do you have an idea for what you would like to be remembered for, for your singular accomplishment? Do you have a, your own personal goal for, I want to achieve this in my tenure at the uh, historic, the first state public health agency in uh, the United States? What would you like your legacy to be, if you have any thoughts about that? I'm glad you mentioned that. I have to say it's incredibly humbling to be the commissioner of a department that has such incredible history dating back to Paul Revere in some ways. And so I am I'm humble in that to recognize that my tenure in the context of this institution will be short. Um, and I'm, I'm reluctant to give you a, a specific to be held to that specific, because I think it is really challenging in public health to say the specifics of, of what we may be able to accomplish, recognizing this complex world that we live in. But I guess I, I would say that I put my, my nickel down on a few big issues early on in my tenure, advancing our, our role and our position on health equity and in racial equity is very important to me. I, I would love to leave this department in a place where everyone, all 3,200 people, see themselves as part of that racial equity work that we're doing to address the historic and structural racism that exists. We have invested heavily in substance use, and I want to continue that investment that dates back prior to many commissioners, but I think it's, it is a crisis in this moment. We have done a tremendous amount around maternal health, and I think it is a realistic goal to say that in my tenure or from my tenure, we can live in a state absent of preventable maternal death. I do think we can get to zero preventable maternal deaths in this state. But I, I guess if I take a huge step back and say, what is it that I'm hoping to accomplish here? It's that I want people to see the power of public health. I want this Commonwealth to recognize the real gem that it has in the Massachusetts Department of Public Health, a leader around the country and around the world in how to implement real world solutions for really complicated problems. That means we need to build trust. 
We need to be transparent in our communication. We need to get out into communities. We need to engage more. And we need to be doing the work on the issues that are affecting the people of the Commonwealth today. So if we can, if I can achieve anything, it's to really shift the external view of this department and make sure that the work that's happening inside matches the expectation on the outside. Dr. Robbie Goldstein, Massachusetts Commissioner of Public Health. I think John and I both thank you both for the breadth of the issues you talked about today and even your final vision of what you'd like uh, to see, uh, the importance of public health and, and what it means in this state uh, to all of us going forward. So thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you for having me.